DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by John Solza, who is a well-noted Catholic apologist, author, and speaker. He's the creator of ScriptureCatholic.com. He is a frequent guest on Catholic radio across the country, including programs heard on Relevant Radio and EWTN. He is also the author of numerous books, including Why Catholics Cannot Be Masons, The Biblical Basis for the Catholic Faith, and The Biblical Basis for the Papacy. With John Solza, we go inside the pages of The Biblical Basis for Purgatory, published by St. Benedict's Press. Jesus taught us about it, and for centuries the Church has faithfully defined and defended it. Protestants deny it even exists, while many Catholics fundamentally misunderstand it. It is purgatory. That place of purifying penance where souls saved by Christ are made perfect and acceptable to spend life eternal in heaven. In the biblical basis for purgatory, author and apologist John Solza offers a definitive scriptural explanation of the distinctively Catholic doctrine. Building on the teachings of Christ and St. Paul, he shows how the existence of a place of temporal punishment after death is not only a logical extension of what we know about the reality of sin and God's justice, but is also a supreme expression of God's love and mercy. Although purgatory is a place of mercy, its pains are real and they are severe. This book does more than defend and explain purgatory. It provides a solid plan, drawn from the Church's perennial wisdom for conquering our sins by God's grace, while still on earth. We now begin our conversation with John Salza. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, John, you know, there, there would be a lot of Protestants out there who would say, how can you come up with first even a biblical basis for purgatory, let alone 200 and some pages that would support that biblical basis? Yes, they would, and hopefully when they read the book, they'll realize that if they, re- they rejected purgatory before they read it, they're going to accept it after they, they read it. Because that's, you know, one of my motivations for writing the, the book, Chris, is to communicate the truths of the Catholic faith. And, and this is one of those contentious doctrines between Catholics and Protestants. And there's a lot of misunderstanding that we can talk about. And I think this, this, uh, this particular book really sets the record straight and clarifies uh, the misunderstandings that are very common. It'd be one of those Catholic dogmas that you would hope that Catholics, in hearing someone have a misunderstanding about purgatory, would be able to respond to quickly and and help alleviate that. But unfortunately, most Catholics are unsure of what the teaching is on purgatory, let alone whether they even really even believe in it in the first place. It's unfortunate because this is a dogma of the faith. It's required for belief as as Catholics. We're required to believe this, and, and I think it may be because in today's society, unfortunately, we've lost the sense of what sin is and the fact that sin has consequences. It has serious consequences. You know, it, it upsets the order of justice that God has arranged the world, and, and we have to make reparation for those sins to restore the equality of justice. 
And so purgatory is, in God's mercy, a way for us to make satisfaction for those venial sins that we committed during our lives and to make reparation for our grave mortal sins that we've made during our lives that we still owe satisfaction for. So really, purgatory is a doctrine of mercy. It's a great gift from the Father, isn't it? It, it is. And, and you know, it's, it's clearly elucidated in Scripture, and this is what I uh, attempt to show in, in the book. You know, they say, where is the doctrine of purgatory? We really permeate Scripture. We can talk about Jesus' teaching when he says that if somebody commits a sin against the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus clearly teaches that there is forgiveness in the age to come. He teaches that if we owe a spiritual satisfaction, we're not going to get out of that spiritual prison until we've paid the last penny. And St. Paul, of course, also talks very explicitly about purgatory in his, uh, many of his letters, Hebrews and particularly Corinthians, where he thought the man who has both done good and bad during his life, the bad works that, he, that he's done, and he's speaking metaphorically, will be burned up. But then Paul says that man will also have to pass through the, the fire to be saved. So there's very explicit texts in, in, in Scripture, and I've also included, as I usually do, quotes from the early fathers, those who were the earliest interpreters of Scripture. They also had a very explicit belief in the doctrine of purgatory, which tells us that this doctrine came from Christ and from the apostles. Well, just to kind of to set the table for folks, I mean, to, to understand that purgatory is if you are destined for that, for purgatory, before you enter into heaven. The good news is you're on your way to that ultimate destination, which we were created for, is heaven. So maybe what we have to understand, what is heaven like? It's not, not something that we die and then we're in heaven. That's right. You know, the, the last book of Scripture, the Apocalypse, says nothing unclean shall enter it. And even the slight, slightest fault on our soul, whether it's a venial sin, whether it's an inclination to sin, whether it's any kind of nominal impurity, if Scripture says nothing unclean shall enter heaven, then there must be a, a, a process by which those impurities are purified. If we're assuming that most people do not die in a state of perfection, right, mm-hmm. then there must be a transitional period which the impurities are purified. Reason even demands this. And what I tell my Protestant friends is, well, they first agree that we sin to the re- for the rest of our lives. And we, we we're continuing to sin until we die. They admit that. And they also admit what I just said, that Scripture says nothing unclean gets into heaven. So by reason alone, there must be a transitional state by which we're purified in order to be prepared fit for heaven so we're no, no longer unclean. When you spoke earlier of God's great mercy, it's a gift of mercy, this purgation that happens in purgatory, that it is something that we we can embrace even here now, but it's a difficult process. I mean, it is the, the ongoing call to holiness, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a difficult process, but I think, you know, when we experience suffering in our lives, we also experience, I think, more profoundly the presence of God. And when we're in purgatory, our souls are in purgatory, we are truly united to God. And, and the saints have said, and those that have received the mystical revelations about purgatory, you know, we no longer have our bodies in purgatory, so we're not weighed down anymore with our concupiscence, okay? Once the soul leaves the body, it seeks God alone. It's not seeking to satisfy its corporal desires, so it seeks God alone. So there's a union with God in purgatory that we haven't experienced uh, on earth. So there is, 
there is a contentment and a peace, and yet there's this longing and desire, and that's what the saints have also said. Even though we're, we know we're going to have a pain, we've made it, there is such an intense desire and love for God in purgatory that it's really the pain of loss, not just the pain of sense that we're experiencing through through the fire, however that whatever that means, but it's the pain of loss that we haven't yet reached God, even though we're going to, because we know by our faults we didn't exact out, we didn't make satisfaction for those faults in our lives. So, yes, we truly are united to God, and there, there's a sense of pain, there's a sense of loss, but there's a sense of joy as well. You used the term satisfaction, and that, is, in many ways, sometimes the understanding of the last things comes down to almost legal terminology. But for Catholics, that legalism is very dangerous territory to tread in, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're right. There are some legal terms that are used in in Scripture, um, but God is our judge, and He's judging us by the law of the New Covenant, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's more than just law. We're not just, uh, you know, subjects uh, under God's rule and reign, even though we are. We're also children of the Father. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, there's there's, uh, the relationship that we have with our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, that this purification is for our benefit so that we can be fully united to God. And it gets back to the, the notion of what, what the consequences of, of sin. When we sin, we commit an act of injustice. Okay, That injustice has to be restored through a satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Where the Protestants go wrong is they rightfully acknowledge that Jesus died and he atoned for the eternal punishment of our sins. Only an eternal being could have made satisfaction for the eternal consequences of Adam's sin. But God, in his mercy, has willed us to participate as finite creatures to atone for the temporal punishments for our sins in order to purify us. It's part of our punishment, but it's also part of our purification process as well. And this is why St. Paul says that he makes up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the Church. It's a very interesting and mysterious statement, but when we think about it, it's Catholic, because what Paul is saying is even though Christ has atoned for our eternal punishment, St. Paul says he's making up what is lacking in Christ's uh, atonement. Well, of course, nothing is lacking in Christ's atonement, but God wills there to be room for us to also participate in the redemptive act. It's not that God wills it. You know, this is part of the program that that he willed, and he wills us to the ability to do it by his grace. So this is what perfects us, and if we don't reach perfection in this world, we're going to have to be purified in the next. John, when we think of purgatory, especially in the Catholic tradition, we we pray for, some term them as the poor souls in purgatory, some say the holy souls in purgatory. Who really is dwelling at this moment in purgatory? Well, those who have died in a state of grace, not in a state of mortal sin, but still uh, owe God satisfaction. Okay, that, that's who is in purgatory. We refer to them as the holy souls because they are holy. Why? Because their souls were in a state of grace. Mm-hmm. They had sanctifying grace in their soul at death. But they're also the poor or the suffering souls because they truly are suffering. There's truly pain that's inflicted. We don't understand how that could be because we're in a soul. We're no longer in our body. 
But the fathers and doctors of the Church, particularly Augustine and Aquinas, said that there is sensible pain in purgatory. I mentioned the pain of loss. There's also the pain of sense, and that's why we refer to them as the poor souls. But as you mentioned, Chris, in the beginning, purgatory is not an alternative destination. It's not a second chance. It is a transitional state whereby the souls who are destined for heaven have to go if they still owe God some satisfaction for their sins. As you said, I mean, this is one of those things that you can reasonably uh, work through, even in in our brains as well as our hearts. If for some reason something were to happen to me today and I were to die, I would still have, because of my soul and my nature, if I have a, a lousy attitude, I still am unforgiving in some areas, I still am angry about other issues, unresolved things, that goes with me, doesn't it, John? It does, and I thought about this a lot as I was writing the book, and I actually put this in the preface. When I thought about it, I thought about, okay, why do people pray for the dead? Why do we all, no matter what religion we're in, why do we remember the dead in our prayers? If the dead are in heaven, they don't need our prayers. If the dead are in hell, they have no use of our prayers. That's why purgatory is an instinct of the human heart. The mm-hmm. fact that it exists is written on the human heart because we remember our loved ones in our prayers. Why? Because we believe we're still mystically united to them, and those prayers can be efficacious for them. They don't need our prayers if they're in heaven. They can't use our prayers if they're in hell, so why do we do it? We do it because God has written on the human heart that we owe him satisfaction and that we're united to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we can assist them through our prayers, through our works, through our suffrages to assist them to get to heaven. And also the saints are very clear in in encouraging us to try to work out our purgatory now. In this life, uh, Teresa of Avila said, you know, uh, to, to be able to go into those areas of our own sinfulness, our own nature, and to try to prepare ourselves for a great holiness. Yes, she did. Many saints talked about that. You know, there are a couple points we could make there, too. The first is we should be motivated to do it now, uh, because if we don't, the suffering that we're going to have to experience for not doing it in this life will be worse in the next And so there's a spiritual motivation in writing the book to try to motivate people to avoid purgatory, not just because you fear punishment, but to live a holier life, to live the Beatitudes. That's one reason. The other reason is God has promised us that if we work this out in this life, we increase our merits before him, and we're going to share uh, in his glory to a greater degree. We're going to be more united to God. Once we get to purgatory, it's God that's doing the satisfaction. We no longer can merit for ourselves. Our soul and our destination and our union with God is fixed at that point. So if we want to be as close to God in the next life, we need to work it out in this life. And again, you, you give us the basic biblical method of avoiding purgatory, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, living that out the way God designed us to be in that uniting with Him. Yeah, all of those means uh, that Scripture teaches us and that the Church gives us are means by which we restore the equality of justice. That's a terminology that St. Thomas used, restoring justice. When we sin, there is an inequity that's committed. There is a disorder that exists in the universe. It's plan. We need to restore it. It's doing something contrary to our will. This is why, for example, if we're engaged in the sin of gluttony, for example, what do we do? 
while we fast. The church professor may ask us for a penance to fast. Why? Because fasting is something that's contrary to our will. We engage the will to commit the sin of gluttony, so we've kind of got off the track. We come back to the equilibrium, if you will, through the contrary movement of fasting. You know, this sounds kind of mathematical, and I'm trying to communicate it in terms that we can understand by our reason, but God is perfect. He's perfection. And sin is imperfection. And nothing but something that's perfect can get into heaven. So that's where this restoration of equity and justice has to take place. And the Church has given us all of these means to do that in this life through prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and the sacraments. Yeah, the sacraments, especially a confession, reconciliation, and when one really enters into that heart area where we look at our sinfulness and the things that we're seeking healing from, that can be emotional suffering because encountering that, trying to reconcile with that, there are tears, there is pain emotionally. And why not have that healed now here on earth as opposed to in purgation? Yeah, you're right, Chris. You know, when we commit a sin, I've mentioned that there are consequences to that sin. One of the consequences is the guilt that we feel. Okay, so that that would be considered a temporal punishment. Our Lord allows us to feel guilty as a form of punishment. Okay, but it's also not just punitive, it's medicinal. Okay, mm-hmm. by His grace, when we recognize that we've sinned and we feel guilt and sorrow for our sin, we're also resolving not to sin again. So it has both a punitive uh, purpose and a medicinal purpose, just like the sacrament of confession does. The medicinal purpose, of course, is to restore our souls to, to a sanctifying grace. The punitive uh, purpose of it is first engaging our will to confess our sins to a priest and then to do penance. And, of course, all this is rooted not only in God's justice, but primarily in God's mercy. Now, this, for many Catholics, they'll hide or they'll squirm or they'll dive under a table when it's brought up either by Protestant brothers or sisters or by someone else, or they see it on television, they don't know how to respond to it, is what I consider a great gift of the Church and a great gift of our Lord, and that's indulgences. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book, The Biblical Basis for Purgatory, you really help us to embrace that once abused by some, but actually a, a tremendous gift for us all in the area of indulgences. It goes right to the heart of our belief in Jesus Christ and the authority that he delegated to Peter through the keys. Uh, the fact that the Church holds the keys, which can bind or loose, the Church has the authority not only to forgive sin, but also to loose the punishments due to sin. That makes sense. If a priest can forgive a mortal sin, has eternal consequences. If a priest has the authority to do that, don't you think that the Church then has the authority to remit the temporal punishment due to sin? Of course, because Christ's atonement covers both the temporal and the eternal, and it's rooted in the scriptural belief and the apostolic belief in the keys that Jesus gave to Peter. And there are examples in scriptures of God granting indulgences. For example, even in the Old Testament, where Solomon you know, committed sin, committed sin of idolatry, of uh, adultery. You know, God gave Solomon an indulgence by saying, because of your sins, I'm going to take away your kingdom, but I'm going to do it not in your life, but in your son's life, your son David. So that's an example of a scriptural indulgence. There, there are other examples in scriptures, but again, it's rooted in the Church's authority uh, by virtue of the keys. And the Church says that, uh, that there's a treasury of merits. If you add up not only all the merits of Jesus Christ, which covers all sins, 
but also the merits of our Blessed Mother, of St. Joseph, and all the saints. There is a treasury there of satisfaction that the saints have made that could cover all of the sins of the world. And because we're united, because we're members of the mystical body, God can apply those merits, those satisfactions, to whom he sees fit within the body, according to his justice and according to his mercy. So indulgences is also a very scriptural, very biblical uh, doctrine that uh, I address in the book. There are anti-Catholics who will accuse the Church of having sold indulgences. I mean, that's something yeah, that, that's it, out there. And, and I have found, uh, Chris, that when I ask them what an indulgence is, they don't even know what it is. They accuse the Church of selling them, but they don't even know what they are. They don't understand the theological definition of, of what they are. So, you know, I find that often to be a very superficial attack, you know, by somebody who really doesn't understand what, what they're talking about. There's no doubt that there were abuses uh, with indulgences, just as there has been abuses throughout the Church. I mean, uh, you know, the word simony comes from the event in the Bible, where somebody wanted to acquire the right to transmit the, the Holy Spirit, Simon, and, and of course, uh, St. Peter con- condemned him. So there, there has always been, because of our fallen human nature, you know, uh, sins committed in connection with the sacraments and with grace and so forth, but that doesn't undermine the doctrine itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't throw out the doctrine of the Eucharist just because there are certain people that may abuse the Eucharist. Well, we're not going to throw out the doctrine of indulgences just because certain people abused the administration of the indulgences. The abuses in the administration have nothing to do with the truth of the doctrine itself. Well, and the good news is that we can gain indulgences. Why don't you help people understand how that's accomplished? Well, let's define what an indulgence is. The Church says that an indulgence is the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin already forgiven. The sin has already been forgiven, but again, we still may owe satisfaction for the sin. We still may to restore ourselves to the quality of justice. Well, the Church said that through her binding and loosing authority, if we commit certain acts that are prescribed by the Church, the temporal punishment that we owe God can be remitted by the Church, either partially or fully, depending upon disposition and depending upon the action. So, for example, if we pray the rosary in a church or in a family setting, or if we read Scripture for an all, uh, for half an hour. These were uh, two of the things that Pope Paul VI enumerated in his Enchiridion of Indulgences that qualify. If the person uh, does not have any attachment to venial sin, in other words, if the person does not intentionally um, uh, put themselves in the occasion of venial sin and has no intention to commit it, they can gain a plenary indulgence, which means all of the punishment due to their sin is remitted by the Church through the power of the keys. If if the person... uh, uh, doesn't meet that standard, they can still have a partial indulgence, which means part of their temporal punishment is remitted by the Church. Now, only God knows how this is, works out in eternity, but we can be fully confident that through the authority of the Church, through, by Jesus Christ, the Church not only can forgive our sins, which have eternal consequences, but also can remit the temporal punishment due to those sins through indulgences. And I think you, uh, so effectively throughout the whole book, help us and reassure us, not necessarily to fear purgatory, but to have a holy fear of purgatory. And there is a difference, isn't there? There is. You know, as we consider ourselves children of the Father uh, by grace, by experiencing grace, Scripture says that fear of the Lord is, is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by grace. 
so there is a holy fear of, of the Lord as we're children. I think, you know, we had a holy fear of our own parents, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a reflection of our relationship with our earthly parents, but more especially with our Heavenly Father. Of course we fear our Father because He's going to judge us. He's going to judge every thought, word, and deed. And you know what? That's, that's a daunting thought when we know that we're going to be before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as St. John says in his epistle, we can have confidence in the day of judgment by living out grace, by performing these acts, spiritual works of mercy, uh, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and the sacraments, we can have confidence that we're in a state of grace and will be judged worthy to stand before our Lord and share eternal life with Him. So it's good to have a holy fear of God, but the motivation should be to live out holy lives out of love for God and love for our neighbor. And that's why I'm trying to, you know, that, that's the purpose of, of the book, to motivate Catholics to really be truly Catholics. And just to go back real quick on those who are now in purgatory, just the importance and the loving action of praying for them and also encouraging them to pray for us. Indeed. You know, Jesus tells us that, you know, what we do will be repaid to us a hundredfold. Don't you want to gain some friends right now? Mm-hmm. Because, I, you know, I think we're all going to need some help, aren't we, you know, when we pass from this life to the next. And I can tell you, Chris, I'm trying to make as many friends as possible. I, you know, I, I make it my daily uh, devotion to pray for the holy souls. And I, I want to encourage, you know, all of our all of our listeners to do that because it's a spiritual work of mercy. And we're trying to free them. And you know what? We're going to need their assistance someday, too. And we're going to know who we helped, and we're going to know who helped us, and we're going to live in the love of Christ in heaven for eternity. It's a wonderful thing to think about. Well, John Sulza, the book, The Biblical Basis for Purgatory, once again, you are so clear, so articulate, uh, so thorough. I mean, everything in it, and and I love the prayers at the end of the book. I mean, that in itself would be worth picking it up. Mm. Thank you. Any final thoughts? Well, I, I hope this really uh, clarifies for Catholics what you know why this doctrine exists, why our Lord, why God created purgatory, and I hope that this helps Catholics explain their faith better and also bridges the gap between us and Protestants. I think once they see the reality and the truth of this doctrine, perhaps then they may be thinking maybe what the Church is teaching is true. Let them investigate some of her other teachings. So that's the goal of the book. This book, of course, is published through St. Benedict Press. Just a remarkable work they're doing these days. Yeah, they really are, and I'm glad to be affiliated with St. Benedict Press. Uh, They're a wonderful Catholic publisher. They acquired 10 books and publishers. They're trying to continue to promote some of the great traditional Catholic works. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. With John Salza, we've gone inside the pages of The Biblical Basis for Purgatory. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to stbenedictspress.com, the website for its publisher, St. Benedict's Press. Or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, Insights from Today's Most Compelling Authors.